0: we are continuing a study uh, in our sermons in the book of Ruth. Over the course of of this book, if you're just joining us, we're towards the end. We've got this week and next week in the book of Ruth. And what we've seen throughout the story of Ruth is that Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, lived their life, a very difficult life, a life that saw them lose almost everything you can lose. Naomi lost her husband and her sons in the midst of a famine. And now these two widows come into the, into the uh, Israelite community of Bethlehem looking for mercy, looking for some who would come around them and show them the mercy of God. And we've been asking steadily uh, this question as we preach through Ruth. How can we, in the midst of the chaos of our world, show the mercy of God to our neighbors? And so uh, this morning we come to Ruth chapter 4, uh, still looking at that very question. And so, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word?
1: Our scripture reading today is from Ruth Ruth 4, 1 through 12. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten more And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite and widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephraphath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord is absolutely true and given to us in love.
0: You can be seated. So last Sunday uh, after the service, uh, some of you were able to join us at about 4.30. We had a break in in an otherwise rainy weekend. We had a break and we went out to Lackawanna Park directly behind us that way. Uh, And we had a cookout. We celebrated uh, Christchurch in-town's three-year anniversary. Uh, We had some delicious uh, smoked chicken and rice. It was so good. We had a a kickball tournament uh, out on the field. It was just a beautiful day for about an hour and a half before the bottom fell out and it rained on us. But one of the things that happened in that moment and something that we were hoping it would happen, we made extra food. And so we had hoped that some of our neighbors uh, in the area would come out and join us for the meal. And we did. We had a couple of people that came and joined us for the meal. They smelled the food. I think some of them had been involved in a basketball game with the Jones boys, who were really glad uh, for our our missionary basketball uh, operation that we had going on. It was was wonderful. And then some of these guys came over, and and we we made them a plate of food, and we sat around. We got to know each other a little bit. And inevitably, you know, as the conversation goes, we start talking about our families and what's going on in our lives. And uh, uh, One of them had had a son as well who was playing basketball. And so we started talking about our lives, and they said, you know, a question that many would have is, well, what are you guys doing here? Why, why are you here? And they said, well, we've got a, you know, we're part of a church that meets just right over there, we meet at 10 a.m., we'd love to have you join us some Sunday. And they said, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, we'll, we'll check it out, we'd love to do that. And so as we talked to them about our church, uh, I found myself in a position that maybe you're like me, you found yourself in this position before, is you're trying to tell somebody about your church. You're trying to tell somebody why they should bother right? Getting up early on a Sunday, one of the few days of the week. You can sleep in if you want to. Uh, why bother getting up and, and getting dressed and, and coming into church? What is it about your church? Tell us about your church. What is it? Why are you here? What's your mission? Maybe you found yourself in similar conversations. It might be uh, with somebody in our neighborhood here. It might be somebody at work, right? When you're just catching up about your weekend, you're saying, what did you do this weekend? Well, we did this and that. and Well, we went to church, Well, why? Why did you go to church? What's your church all about? How would you answer that question? What's the mission of your church? Now, maybe you've been an astute sermon listener uh, over the past few weeks, and you could say to this person, oh, perfect timing. We've actually just been talking about this, that we think our church is here to show the mercy of God to our neighbors, right? That the church is an organization that exists not just for itself, but for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. So we are a church that exists to to show mercy to our neighbors. And in this moment of clarity, you remember my sermon titles for the past several weeks? And you say, we're here to to do life with you, to walk alongside you, to enter into your sorrow, to embrace your goodness, to protect you from harm, to carry your burdens. And maybe this person you're, you're, you're talking with goes, man, that sounds great that sounds awesome. I'm not sure about the whole Jesus thing. I don't go to church myself, but you know what? If I was to be a part of a church, I'd want to be a part of one that was helping out people, that was helping their neighbors, was showing mercy. That's the kind of thing that religious folks ought to be about. And then you'd say, oh yeah, and this week we learned that we're also here to proclaim your redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. We're here to to seek your redemption, to tell you that you need a redeemer, then they would look at you with a blank stare maybe, maybe be a little bit offended. What, what does that mean? Seek our redemption. Maybe you'd stammer a little bit about, you know, we, we think you need redeeming. We think we, think we need redeeming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we think there's a, there's a person, there's a man on the throne of heaven that can redeem, that there is a redeemer. See, this is uh, what we're going to talk about today is the point at which uh, the church's ministry gets the most awkward to talk about. Um, but, on the other hand, the place that is the most important cornerstone of the church's ministry, that all of the things that we've talked about thus far, seeking our neighbor's good, preventing them from harm, bearing their burdens, means absolutely nothing if it's cut off from this central message of Christianity is that we are incapable of redeeming ourselves. Right? All of our good works, all of our efforts to love, all of our efforts at charity, all of those things, if cut off from the message of the Redeemer, actually leave, us, uh, leave our neighbors in worse shape than they were before and leave our very souls in, a, in jeopardy. Right, That if we say uh, we're here to help, we're here to, to, to love our neighbors, but we don't announce good news about a Redeemer, a couple of things happen. One, the church uh, gets robbed of its power and becomes just like any other uh, kind of social do-gooders club of people that are here to help, here to assuage their consciences by giving a little bit of charity, perhaps. But we're not unique in any, in any real way. And further, we risk alienating our neighbors. What's more offensive to somebody than to say, we have all, you know what, we're here to help you, and we in ourselves have everything you need. We have all of the answers you need. We have all of the help that you need. We have everything you need. You should count your lucky stars that we're here. That's incredibly patronizing. It's incredibly wounding. But because of the message of the Redeemer, the message that we, as much as anyone in our city, are sinners in need of grace, have made a mess out of our lives and are in need of Jesus to put it back together, only that uh, gives our message hope only that gives it power. Only that keeps us from being those kinds of people who, who seek to, through our own good works, through our own open-mindedness and love and generosity, seek to make ourselves righteous. Right? It's only the message that we proclaim a redeemer beyond ourselves. Someone other than us is our hope. And that's what uh, we look at uh, today in Ruth chapter 4. You know, the passage that we look at today is one of the Old Testament's uh, clearest examples, clearest pictures of the work of Jesus. It's one you know, when, when the New Testament writers use the word redeemer to talk about Jesus, this picture of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, this very story is at least somewhere near the front of their mind when they're talking about what it means that Jesus is a redeemer. It means that Jesus is somebody like Boaz. Remember, we talked last week about this idea of a kinsman redeemer. It was an idea that was rooted in the law of Israel, that when somebody in the community found themselves on hard times, when they found themselves destitute, there was this law of the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman means it was someone who was close to them, someone who was related to them, who could come in, step in, and intervene in their lives to buy off their debt, to seek to, uh, to marry the widow in this case, the widow who's been left without protection, without provision, someone could step in and marry the widow, and the children that they would have uh, after that would not be counted as their own children, but would be counted as the inheritance of the one who died. And in this uh, system of the kinsman-redeemer, we get an incredibly beautiful picture of what redemption is, This word that the scriptures use so often that the Christian church loves to talk about and sing about, redemption. What is it? Well, in this passage, we see that uh, it has two major forces, two major pictures of redemption that we see here. One is that redemption pays our debts. And then secondly, redemption uh, includes us in love. First, redemption involves paying our debts. Naomi found herself in a situation Uh, if you remember, she and her husband Elimelech left Bethlehem. They left their community in the midst of a famine to go seeking out uh, better life elsewhere. They went ultimately to the land of Moab where the famine wasn't quite so severe. But in their haste, when they left, they left a piece of land just there in Bethlehem that they continued to own in their absence. And now they come back and it's amazing, really, that Naomi hasn't had to sell this land by this point. But she still finds herself in ownership of this land. But she's unable to pay for it. She's unable to work it. She's unable to get it to produce in the way that her husband had. So in her desperation, she and Ruth come to a place where they need somebody to buy this land off of them. In, uh to put it in contemporary language, they found themselves upside down in this property. Right? They couldn't afford, the, in our life, the taxes, the mortgage payment, uh, upkeep on the property. It, had, it got to a place where it was costing them more to keep it than it was providing for them. So they came to a place where they had to sell it. And that's what's going on here. What, the, the scene that we're looked at that we're looking at today is a legal scene. Right? It doesn't seem like that. There's not a judge. There's not a courtroom. It's not a scene that we would recognize. But when it says that he assembles some of the elders there at the city gate, That's where legal proceedings went on in an ancient Israelite village. So this is official legal business that they're seeking to do where they're trying to find out if someone will buy this piece of property that belonged to Naomi. You know, um, in this situation where this property had become uh, nothing but a debt, to Naomi, where it becomes something where they owed uh, more than they could, could possibly a- ever able to be, be able to pay. We get a glimpse in this system of what the scriptures tell us about our own spiritual condition, that because of the fall, because of our sin, each and every one of us is a debtor. Each and every one of us owes a debt that we're unable to pay. Just like Naomi had a debt that she couldn't pay, she had, uh, owed money on this land that she couldn't provide. Each one of us, because of sin, owes a debt that we can't pay, right? You know, different uh, theologians and different points in the church's history have had different ways of talking about this debt. If you've ever seen medieval art, sometimes you'll see Jesus with a bag of money that he's handing to Satan, right? It's an odd little uh, piece of of medieval art that, that repeats itself over and over again. But the idea, mistaken, in those days was that because of sin, we owed a debt to Satan and that Jesus at the cross tricked him, that he paid him a debt and then we were able to get ransomed from Satan. Well, that's not, a, that's not an accurate picture of the debt. The debt is actually not a debt that we owe to Satan, but it's a debt that we owe to God, yeah. right? That God is owed from each of our lives perfect obedience, perfect worship, that we're made to live a perfect life before God and so we owe a debt towards God. Another idea that crept up in the church was that we do owe this debt towards God, but that the way that we pay that debt is we do enough good things so that our good eventually outweighs our bad, right? That we can do enough good in our lives that God will eventually overlook the bad, overlook the debt, and say, oh, wait, you know what? You paid off your debt. You did enough penance. You were sorry enough. You did enough good things, so your debt is cleared. This was the the belief that ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation, right? This is the, the erroneous belief that Luther and Calvin and others said, no, no, this isn't right. This isn't a, a biblical picture. I will say that it's not only the beliefs that led to the, the Reformation. I think it's also the kind of vaguely Christian belief that permeates America, the vaguely Christian belief that permeates the South, right, which is that, well, we don't, we don't know about everything, but what, you know what? We think God basically just wants uh, for your good to outweigh your bad. But if at the end of the day, you do more good than bad, if you give more than you take, if you serve more than you're selfish, then ultimately God's going to look at you and he's going to say, you know what? Dave was all right. He did more good than bad in the end. He meant well, and so everything's fine. But uh, the, the more accurate biblical view that's been taught in the scriptures, held by the church fathers, recovered by the reformers, is that we owed a debt to God because of our disobedience to him in that it's a debt that we could never repay. It's a debt that's completely beyond our capacity to pay it. Just like Ruth and Naomi, they're here desperately needing somebody other than them to intervene, somebody with resources that they don't have. Right? To, to, to be in this position, to put property up for sale in the ancient world, was a sign of desperation. Right? Nobody put land up for sale because they'd found a better lot down the street. Right, nobody put a land up for for sale because you know what, we've had a couple kids and we need to upsize and so we need to move some things around or the kitchen's not quite what we wanted it to be. That's not why people sold property in the ancient world. Property was your life. It's what you held on to. It's what you hoped to pass on to your children just as your father had passed it on to you and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. So these women are here in a position of absolute destitution. If somebody from beyond themselves doesn't intervene, They're without hope. And so what it takes, uh, what they require, is a redeemer, is a redeemer. You know, you can look at a a redeemer as having two basic qualities. It's somebody who has the ability to pay and somebody who has the willingness to pay. Right, in this story that we come to here, there's two possible candidates for this role of redeemer. There's Boaz, but if you were here last week, he tells Naomi, there's actually somebody closer to you. There's a redeemer who has first right of refusal on this land and on your life. And so that's what we, we've got to go to the court, we've got to go to the gate and weigh this out. And it takes a redeemer who's both able to pay, so somebody of some means, and somebody who's willing to pay, right? Ruth and Naomi may have had other, other well-meaning family members who are too poor to help, right? We've all, you know, most of us have that in our life, right? You get in, you get in a hard place, and you go to some members in your family, and they may be quick to come over and invite you for a meal or to dry your tears or to listen to you complain about it, but ultimately, they're just as broke as you are, right? They don't have the ability to, they can't go, oh, it's all right, Dave, I'll write you a check and, and erase all your problems. No, they might have had other family members who loved them, who would have loved to help if they could, who would have loved to have written a check and done away with their problems. So they were willing, but they weren't able. They didn't have the means. But here in Boaz and in this man are two two relatives who have the means. They have the capacity. They have the ability. But will they have the willingness? Will they be willing to take on this debt, to take on Ruth's life? You know, what we see is that to a point, both of them are willing. To a point, both of these men are willing. This would-be redeemer who, uh, interestingly, is never named. Uh, in in this chapter this other would-be redeemer says yes I'll do it I'll redeem the property and so he shows an initial willingness to do it but then when Boaz says hey actually there's one more thing the minute you redeem the property the minute you take on the land you get something else with it you also get Ruth the Moabitess you've got to marry her and take her on to your to your own life Marry her, and any of her children will be hers and her deceased husband's to continue his legacy. And at that moment, uh, the other would-be redeemer says, I don't know, you didn't tell me that. (laughs) I'm out. out. He He says, I can't jeopardize my own inheritance. I can't jeopardize my own children, my own livelihood by taking her on. And so it reaches a point where his willingness breaks down. Because you see, redemption, uh, we've said that redemption involves taking on a debt, but it involves something else. It involves also restoring someone to love. Always and everywhere in the scriptures, redemption is a means to an end. The paying of the debt is not an end in and of itself. The paying of the debt is never just so that it can get done. It's It's not just a function of God's nitpicking legal nature that somebody has to pay a debt for the crimes of our sin. It's not just a legal transaction. Behind redemption, everywhere it shows up in the scriptures, there's love. The point of redemption is to restore relationship. It's to restore love. And you know what? This redeemer, this would-be redeemer, gets to a place, exactly that point. He's willing to give the money but he's unwilling to admit Ruth into his own life and love. And that's the moment that Boaz says, I'll do it. And I have a suspicion that Boaz always knew that this is what it was about. Uh, That at the end of the day, this drama that he was in with Ruth, he knew that it ended in love, that it ended in union, that it ended in him and her coming together in one life. And he was willing to pursue her to that point. He was willing to bring her into himself and onto his own life. One biblical commentator, Jay Vernon McGee, puts it this way. He says, the book of Ruth declares that redemption is not a business transaction, but a love affair. That redemption is not a simple business transaction, right, which I think sometimes, even in the Christian church, is how we can look at it, right? I, there's this transaction. I give Jesus my sin. He gives me his righteousness. And then I know that I'm not going to hell when I die but that we lose that it's a redemption for a relationship, that it's a redemption for a union with God in Christ. And yet throughout the pages of the scriptures, that's always what redemption is. If you look at God's, uh, the the picture of redemption, that's kind of the ultimate picture uh, that the New Testament draws on is the Exodus. When God redeemed his people from Egyptian slavery, brought them out out of slavery, he did that for the purpose of bringing them into relationship with himself so that they would be his God, and, or that he would be their God, and they would be his people. right? Hosea, when he describes this God bringing the people out of Egypt, he says, I allured you into the wilderness. Right? I, I, this was our honeymoon, God's saying. I brought you out of Egypt into the wilderness so that we would learn how to live together as a God and people, where he would feed them and share meals with them and provide for them, where he would actually live with them in a tent of meeting." That God's presence was with them. It was redemption for the sake of union. The sacrifices in the temple that the priests made day after day, killing bulls and rams and sheep and bringing those sacrifices to God. Those sacrifices were for the payment of debt. But do you know what they did with the sacrifices after they made them? They ate them. They ate the meat. The idea was that the sacrifice was made, but then so that we human beings could sit down and share fellowship with God. He's had his meal from the sacrifice, and now we eat it and we enjoy table fellowship with God. Christ at the cross. The sacrifice of Christ at the cross is to pay the debt. It is to pay the debt that we owe to God. But beyond that, you know what the language that Paul uses more than any other language to describe what it means to have faith in the cross is that we become people in Christ. Right, that we're brought into union with God in Christ, into fellowship with him. Right, what we celebrate today at at, at the Ascension, in in every place where the gospel writers tell of the Ascension, the the main point that they're making is that Jesus is ascending. He's leaving physically his followers. He's leaving them. He's not going to be face-to-face with them in the same way. But over and over again, he's clear to point out, and the authors are clear to to write down, that the point of his leaving physically is so that he can be more united with them spiritually. Luke says it as Jesus is ascending in the first chapter of Acts. He says, wait in Jerusalem until I send my spirit, right? Because then I'm going to be with you, no longer just next to you physically, but in you, by my spirit, Right in Matthew, in the well-known Great Commission, Jesus at his ascension says, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. In John, it's it's, I'll leave you so that I can send to you another comforter. I've been comforting you and walking along with you and counseling you in my earthly life, but I'm going to send someone who's going to be in you and with you forever. That The point of redemption, the point of the paying of the debts, is always and everywhere, union with God, fellowship, nearness, closeness, what McGee calls a love affair between us and God. And that's what Boaz shows so perfectly. That's the picture that he paints for us so clearly of Jesus, is that Jesus pays. Remember we said a redeemer had to be willing and able. right? Jesus is uniquely able to be our redeemer because he lived a life that we could never live. He lived a perfect, righteous life as the Son of God in perfect relationship with his Father. And he was willing, to the utmost, to the point of even shedding his own blood and giving his life, he was willing to be our Redeemer. He was willing to pay our debts, satisfying the legal demands of God's law, and he was desirous of us to live in union with us in relationship. And so Boaz, in his generosity, in his love, in his sacrifice, in his willingness, and in his ability, paints this perfect picture. Though it's a shadow, though it's not the fullness that comes in Christ, a picture of Christ the groom, the bridegroom, and us the church, Ruth, as the bride, the one who who was purchased, whose debt was paid, and who was restored to union how was Boaz able to do this, right? Like this is, it's pretty amazing to say that a human being was able to be this shadow that points to Jesus, such that in the church's earliest days, they've been reading this story as a a pointer, as a figure of Jesus. So in one hand, Ruth, I mean, uh, Boaz is a pretty incredible guy. He's one of the superheroes of the Bible. And yet in another way, Boaz was just a normal guy. He was wealthy, but he wasn't a king. He was trying to be faithful to his God, but he wasn't a priest. He was certainly bold, but he wasn't a prophet. This wasn't a a leader in Israel. This was just a normal, everyday guy with some means, but who was able to act with such incredible grace, such incredible kindness, such incredible redemptive vision on Ruth's behalf. How? How was he able to do that, right? This is an important question. If, if, If Boaz's life pointed forward to Jesus, with redemptive purpose. And we hope that all of our lives point backwards to Jesus such that the way that we love people, the way that we serve people makes them go, oh, I want to I know Jesus. What is it that Boaz knew? What is it that was in him that he was able to have leak out towards, towards Ruth in this moment of redemptive glory? Well, I think it's because Boaz was a man who knew deep down in the core of his being that the central fact of his life was God's redemptive love for him, right? That he knew the grace of God in an incredibly real and tangible way. And so he was able to extend that to Ruth. Why do I think that? It's a good question. Look at the way that our passage ends. Uh, All the people who see what happens here says, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the wives of the patriarchs, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Tamar was a woman who was actually Boaz's great, great, great grandmother. She was a woman who got into the family of God uh, through prostitution, through deceit. She was someone who was an outsider, a pagan Canaanite, who was brought into the family of Israel solely by God's grace. And that's that's Boaz's great-great-great-great-grandmother. So when they sat around and told stories about their family, they knew that way back we we were outsiders who didn't have any business being included in the family of God. Look at, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'll read it. Look at Matthew chapter one, verse five. This is one of those chapters, if you're ever reading the gospel, this is one that you kind of skim over a lot of times because it's the, the begats. You know, such and such was the father of such and such, was the father of such and such. It's easy to kind of glaze over. But as we read verse five, in salmon, or salmon, that's the, fa- salmon's what you eat, Salmon's the guy. Uh, the father of Boaz so this is Boaz's dad by who who's who's Boaz's mama Rahab Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab who was Rahab Rahab was a pagan Canaanite prostitute who when the spot when when Israel was coming into Canaan coming into Jericho she was the one who, who took the spies into her own room. Remember that story? And hid them. And when the, when the Jericho army came through looking for the spies, said, I don't know where they are. And so she hung out a, a scarlet thread from her window so that when Jericho was destroyed, her life was spared. You remember that story? So, how was Boaz able to show the grace of God to this pagan Canaanite outsider? He said, These are my people. I know this. I've got my life story. My my family album has a couple of prostitutes in it who were outsiders, outsiders to God, outsiders to the people of Israel, who by nothing else but by God's sheer grace were included in his plan, were included in his family. The only reason I, Boaz, have anything to account for myself, any place in God's family, is solely because of the grace of God. And so he shows this incredible grace and kindness to the outsider Ruth because he recognized himself, because he recognized his story and her story. He recognized his shame and her shame and his destitution and her destitution. We will never, we will never be able to seek God's redemptive work in our neighbors, whether they be our neighbors here in Lackawanna, whether they be the neighbors that you share a bedroom and a house with, whether it's the neighbors that you work with and live with, we will never be able to be vessels of God's redemptive love towards them until at the center of our being, at the very core of our story and the way that we think about ourselves, we come to think about ourselves as those who do not belong in God's kindness, those who because of our sin deserve to be on the outside, but that by God's love and mercy, he's brought near to him that he's paid our debt, he's brought us into a relationship with him in love, that we are his redeemed people. Right? It's not those of us who have the answers figured out, who are good, coming to show our wisdom and our goodness with our neighbors. People have had enough of that from Christians. It's us coming to say, you know what, this is my story. I need a redeemer, and I found him. If we don't proclaim the redeemer to ourselves every day when we wake up, every day when we get dressed, that we are those in need of a Redeemer. We'll never faithfully uh, proclaim him in word and in deed to our neighbors. Maybe my favorite picture of this uh, in all of literature is the story of Les Miserables. Some of you will know this story. It's a, a novel by Victor Hugo. It was turned into a play, I think, by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Is it a Webber? No? You, you can help me out with this. Uh, just, just big nose. It was turned into a play by someone. Um, and then turn into a couple of movies, some more successful than others. Um, but uh, the, the, the central story of Les Mis by Victor Hugo is a story of a man named Jean Valjean. He was a convict. He was a hardened man. And when he finds himself finally out of prison, uh, out on the street, he's brought in by the kindness of this bishop. He's brought into his home. He's shown nothing but kindness, nothing but love. And yet old habits die hard, and this hardened man in the middle of the night, wakes up, and he steals the bishop's silver. And he leaves, and he flees, and the French police arrest him, and they bring him back before the bishop. And he says, "This guy, we caught this convict on the street. He stole your silver. He made up this crazy story that you actually gave it to him, but but we know that he stole it. If you just give the word, bishop, and we'll throw him back into prison where he belongs. And this is what the bishop says. Uh, This is the words of the play or the musical. I will not sing it, I'll read it. (laughs) You forgot that I gave you also, would you leave the best behind? And at this moment he gives him the candlesticks, the most valuable, the, the highest weight piece of silver that he owned. He said, yes, I did give it to him. Did you forget that I also gave you the candlesticks? So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty, may God's blessing go with you. And remember this, my brother, talking to Valjean now. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion in the blood, God has raised you out of darkness and I have bought your soul for God. What he does in this moment is he redeems Valjean. He, he, he pays the price and then he restores him to love. He says, be a different kind of person. Is a result. And what we see in the rest of Valjean's story is that this moment of kindness, this moment of grace, gets worms its way so deeply into his soul that he becomes an incredibly gracious man, reaching out to the poor, adopting an orphan, caring for a sick woman and her death. He becomes a man who leaks grace to those around him. To the point where his his uh, the antagonist of the story, Jover. This hard man who pursues Valjean mercilessly, day and night. And finally, when they have this face-to-face moment, and Valjean has actually the ability to kill Jovert. He ex- instead extends grace. Grace has become just the grammar through which he speaks and thinks and lives. Grace has become the way that he thinks of himself, the way that he treats others. Grace, God's redeeming grace for him. become what, what changed him and what defined him. So again, back to there you are sitting in front of somebody, says, tell me about your church. Tell me about your mission. Why are you here? What if this was the answer? Because I know myself to be a sinner desperately in need of grace, to be empty desperately in need of Jesus to fill me. And I found myself with another company of broken sinners who we get together on Sundays at 10 a.m. just to celebrate uh, the fact that we've been redeemed by this incredibly gracious God. And then we hope uh, to, to leak out and somehow to reflect that grace in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our streets. Why not you come and join us in this celebration of grace? Let's pray.